Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Nottingham Business School. So listen, learn, enjoy and share. Welcome to the latest episode of the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast with me, Mike Sassy entrepreneur, broadcaster, author. Michael Heyman is no ordinary communications consultant. The Seven Hills company he co-founded is one of the best known corporate consultancies in the country. He himself has been described as one of the best connected men in Britain. But he also has a reputation as a thinker. His success has been built as much on his thought leadership as his political connections. In his role as chair of Seven Hills and of Startup Britain, he has spent the last decade advising fellow entrepreneurs. More recently, as chair of Small Business Charter, he has helped startups access support from business or university business schools. He passionately believes that entrepreneurs can and should help change society for the better. He even has his own very successful Changemakers podcast. However, today uh, he is our guest. So, Michael Heyman, MBE, thanks for joining us on the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders podcast. Mike, great to see you. Pleasure to be on the show. Great stuff. Now, most of your your leadership career has been built on a theme of encouraging entrepreneurs to use their their businesses to help build communities. You talk about harnessing the power of purpose. How does that work? Um, Well, I think um, it won't surprise you to um, believe, well, to to feel that I I, I start from the position that I believe that business um, has great potential not only as um, builders of commercial success, but actually to be agents of change in in society and to be forces for good in the world. And you know, if you're looking at many of the world's greatest challenges, from you know the way we live to the way our health works to the way um, we build society, it will be um, business will have a disproportionately more important part um, of of that story. And so, my, my my first sense is, well, actually, purpose is is an opportunity. Stepping up, stepping in is something that I think we all do in, in lots of different parts of our lives as volunteers, as philanthropists, but actually as business leaders, um, there is a great opportunity to be um, a part of this this change, this movement. Um, and there's a lot to gain from it because you see, I, th- I think that uh, purposeful businesses tend to be more profitable businesses. I think they tend to be more high performance businesses. There's very good Bain and Co research that will that shows the relationship between inspired employees that buy into their company's purpose and those employees that are merely satisfied or even dissatisfied and roughly it's about two and a half times productivity between inspired employees and merely satisfied employees so I think there are very sound commercial reasons to be um, purposeful in business and I feel that it's not a choice of purpose or profit. I mean, I feel there's a circularity. There's a kind of engine room here where actually this sort of uh, the, the quest for progress um, is more than compensated and indeed driven by that quest to deliver purpose. So that purpose would be a, 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 an explicit social purpose, you know, where you, you know, your, your employees walk through the door and you say, look, part of what we're doing here is, is trying to uh, build a better future for everyone who lives around us. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I th- look, I mean, I, I start from a 
you know, fairly sort of basic position, which is that I think that um, there is a purpose in business because, you know, you are, you're employing people, you're serving customers, you're paying taxes, you know, you're part of a responsible world of being an active corporate citizen in, 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 in life. And I think that, um, you know, that that's the sort of the baseline. If, you know, if you almost look at it like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I mean, that's the equivalent of sort of like basic life essentials. I just think there's an opportunity to go further, do more, because I feel that by building inspiring environments for your company is that you build more relationship and connectivity with your customers, more relationship and connectivity with your um, with your stakeholders. So whether you're a publicly listed company or or indeed you just want better relationships with your customers. I, m- my sense is, is that there is an increasing level of um, transparency and also interest in who we buy from, what they stand for, and how we ultimately behave. Even in difficult economic times, like we're experiencing. Yeah, well, that's a good question, and and I, and I think the um, the um, the key to this answer is not to be absolute, right? So there's no one absolute. So it's, it, it, there are always reasons. Um, to make different choices, right? And one of those is when times are tough, um, it is very, you know, and you look at this recently with the debates over electrification, things like the ULEV scheme in 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 um in, in the recent Uxbridge by-election. I mean, they're all they're all things where these are factors, right? But I think the the onward trend, if you look at the way things are going, if you look at the way that technology is being adopted, is that we need business to be a force for good in the world, because that is where the majority of the innovation and progress is going to come from. And if you look at things like, for example, the development of technologies on AI, we need AI to be a force for good in the world. And so it's in everyone's interest, I think, that actually this sort of style of doing things is seen as much more mainstream rather than you only can do it if you can afford it, which I think brings in policymakers and all sorts of other people to actually help make good decisions possible. Okay. So let's go back to the beginning. You were born and brought up in Sheffield in the 1970s. Um, I was. <laughs> you're still a Sheffield United fan. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I know. I noticed from your social media. Um, did those years in any way shape your future leadership? Massively. Massively, massively, massively. Um, I mean, first of all, I mean, I, I mean, I, I am a blade, um, and even though sorry, we... just for everybody else, yeah. that's as opposed to an owl. An owl is a Sheffield <laughs> Wednesday fan. A blade is yeah. a Sheffield United fan. But carry on. I could say a more impolite uh, description there, Mike. But I mean, anyway, I mean, as as it is, I'll take that. I mean, um, and and despite a kind of like slightly imperfect start to the return to the Premiership, I think that you know, in, in many ways, they are a great. You know, the Sheffield United are a great sort of proxy for the. For the Sheffield experience, which is hardworking, um, really sort of like you know when others others see defeat, they see opportunity. I mean, they they're, they're kind of it's the kind of team that um, right off at your peril, and I feel that's a good good proxy for the city because you know the city has been through some incredibly tough times, um, and you know I mean I mean frankly the seventies was was the decade where you know you could almost. Um, you could almost put a day on it, actually, in terms of a city that seemed to be doing all right and doing okay. You know, at the at the vanguard of steel production, and you know, a big city on a, on a global stage, made in Sheffield, a, a brand known all over the world. And then, of course, you know, the bottom fell out of that, and you know, and, and you know, sort of 
areas like Attercliffe, which we call the Golden Mile, which were, you know, these sort of like service roads to, you know, which were small entrepreneurs, small shops, people that were working. I mean, they, those 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 streets were decimated, right? And um, uh, and I feel that you know, on that the seventies was a very, you know, sort of bleak um, end, really, for 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 the city. And I mean, and ever since that, I think fighting for its future has been, you know, the, the various chapters. And of course, you know, it, bringing that right up to date, you know, this is a really important part of the character of the city. You know, there's a great saying that attitude is the small thing that makes the big difference. There but is a chef of that. change your leadership? I think that it, I think that attitude um, made me resilient. Um, I think it made me realistic. Um, I think that, you know, there's an element of, um, I think big Northern city life gives you a perspective. Um, and I, I, I look at it as a bit of a secret superpower because I think that what it, what it does is that it means that, you know, Northern cities by their nature are quite large cities, but they're also very small cities. As you'll know, people know each other. And actually I think that when you're in a really massive city, that doesn't quietly quite, quite apply in the same way. So what it means is that all of the time you're having lots of different influences in your life that ultimately shape your worldview and shape your outlook. So I feel that, um, that Sheffield has, has, and continues to have a major, um, impact. I also think, you know, I mean, on, on a slightly lighter note is that there's a city where humor has been a, a big part of, you know, humor and music are too part of it sort of like, you know, cultural identity. And I feel that, you know, although I'm not the best music taste in the world, I think that humor is a big part of, um, of, of my life and, and actually, um, things that, you know, I, I feel that the city, the city always was able to sort of find, you know, the ability to have a laugh and even in some fairly dark times, I think that, that those are all assets that you can take into your life. Right. And I think that where you're from does matter. Um, and you know, it gives you unique perspectives. And, um, so I would say, I, I believe it has shaped my leadership style and hopefully one that is realistic and, and, and real. So, so, but what do you know now that you, you wish you'd known then? I think, um, I think there was always a sense that, um, you know, going up in the north of England, that you were missing out on action, right? You know, that there was something going on somewhere else that was going to be bigger, better, brighter. Um, you know, and it's the kind of Dick Whittington-esque streets were paved with gold. And of course, the reality is, it's a, you know, going up in a city like that was great. It was great to be a, a child growing up there. It's great to live there. It's great to work there. There are great people there. And I think, you know, there was always a kind of a bit of a restlessness that there was this sort of like big wide world that I was going to, you know, go out and see. And, and and by the way, I don't think that's entirely a bad thing, but I wish I'd known the fact that actually this was really good. You know, that what I, what I was, you know, what I was experiencing, the people I was meeting, the, the life stories that they were able to share with me, this was the good stuff. So if you look backwards now, you, you, you'd say, goodness, I wish I was a bit more relaxed. I was a bit more easy going, a bit, bit, bit less, less, less eager to, to get on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, but I would say that that has always been a complaint friends of mine have made of me, which is I can remember one very good friend saying to me, well, it would be nice to see you look back and admire the view because uh, I'm always in a hurry to get somewhere. And I, and I suppose, you know, that's, that's just my style is that I'm sort of like, you know, there's a, there's quite a bit of energy in my, in my, the way I do things. Okay. So, so you, you your eagerness to move on when you went down to school in Somerset, you went to university in London and you built a communications career in the capital. So, um, 
Do future leaders in Britain still have to have to head south for success? No, uh, they don't. Um, and um, however, saying that, um, I believe that mobility and movement is a good thing. And I think that experiencing lots of different cultures. I mean, we were just talking off air about our respective family journeys. I mean, my 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 family are from. I mean, I mean, pretty much all over the place. I mean, but but there is one 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 of my relatives that sticks in my mind. Who was my my great grandfather that came over to the UK on a, on a um, on a horse bay, you know, kept bringing uh, bringing horses over to the UK for his uncle, who gave him a a gold coin and said, "Don't bother coming back." And and he moved into and, and he moved into the UK, got off the boat in Hull, finished up in Sheffield. That's why we ultimately live there. And and you know that movement was transform transformative for him, right? You know, transformed the way he looked at the world. I mean, he became he became the best Yorkshireman never born in Yorkshire. I mean, you know, that was a kind of a you know, that was a movement. There's a few of those, aren't there? There's a few of those. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and so so I, I so I my, my sense is that actually experiencing many many different cultures broadens your mind. Saying that, um, I believe that the North of England is showing quite clearly now that there is a determination um to plot a course um and that these cities will be engines of growth in their own way with leadership communities that will be devolved and different and i think that's to be celebrated on the issue about um about about heading south i mean the south will always i mean just i think just to balance it off i mean the south of england is an essential part of the um of the overall uk story as well and i think i don't think there's anything to be ashamed of of moving to London and having a career there or having you know or having a career where you move back I mean I think that's all part of the you know that's all part of the experience that more and more people should have I think I think the problems I have with it is that actually mobility is difficult you know that actually for a lot of people that that, that actually taking those choices is a really difficult thing to do and I think that um my hope for the future is that with a greater eye on things like devolution and moving things that actually that in of itself will make the freedom of movement easier, more achievable, and that will enrich the life experiences of, 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 of our people that they can move around and experience life in lots of different ways. Okay. So that's mobility. Looking back again on reflection in terms of your leadership, was it clear to you that Whatever you did, you'd end up in charge. <laughs> well, do I you ask him was I an obnoxious child? I mean <laughs> No, 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 no. I mean, like, I mean like you, you're probably captain of captain of football teams and cricket teams and, and you know, no. head boys and things of that nature, you know. I, I, yeah, I wasn't actually. Um uh, I, I I I actually was a late developer, Mike. I mean, I wasn't at the you know, right I mean I, I kind of um um I found I found one good sport swimming that I got okay at um, in, in my teens, um, and that's quite a solitary sport. Of course, you know you're not you're not team leading with that. You know you are ba unless you're in relays, you are you are basically um, in a competition against another person. But really, you've got to rely on yourself. Um, academically, I only came good in my A levels. Um, I mean, and so that was quite a late a late developer. So, so I, I think um, in my um, in my early years, nobody really did. Nobody would have said, "Look, this is this is somebody that you want to go and go down to William Hills and put a bet on." I mean, this was like, you know, this sort of. Um, I think, um, I think what happened was that I mean, back to the true grit and graft of the kind of Sheffield um, experience was that, you know, I plodded on, and um, and that plodding 
sort of got to a point where actually the plotting has started to, to sort of move a bit faster. And I think that slow start in life in terms of, you know, not really knowing what I wanted to do, not being particularly great academically, definitely not being uh, sportily. I mean, I can't say that I'm sat here as a, you know, somebody that had great sporting aplomb as a captain or as a whatever. That just wasn't my world. But I think it gives you a different perspective, right? You know, because I wanted to get good at stuff. And so therefore, I've always sort of like felt that my my style is as the constant improver. I always want to get better. Okay. I mean, you, you talk there about being a late developer uh, academically, but uh, you know the question. I, I've done a lot of these podcasts, and every single person, every single leader, brings up the importance of EQ as much as IQ. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, I know you're a communications man by trade, but how much has your business success been based on your social skills? Well, I think um, I think EQ is more than social skills. Uh, skills. I think EQ is about intuition and it's about feel and it's about and, and I believe that there are um, an intangible set of skills which people could call common sense. They could call lo lots of different things, but it, it's ultimately about judgment, isn't it? You know, in terms of actually, well, how how do you judge a particular set of circumstances? I mean, how do you know that? We're going to get on together. You know, the things like first impressions, right? And actually how you form your judgments um, really do matter. So I I feel that EQ is, I think social skills are, what do you like in a party? What do you like at saying hello to people? Do you like it? Do you not? Um, I think EQ is much more about intuition and about your, your ability to read um, a situation, which I think is a really, really vital skill. Um, and it's a sort of one that in, you know, there are many, many leaders that are, you know, tone, you know, to tonally off because they're not really understanding, they're not situationally aware. They're, they're used to leading, they've been protected in, in bubbles and environments. And I think EQ is about actually understanding the world around you and the people around you. And I think if that's, if that's what we're defining EQ as, I would say it is the most vital skill of all and possibly the most difficult one to put your finger on. Can it be taught? Yes. The students, the leaders, the would-be leaders, not in a business school. You know, it's something that, that, that should be an essential part of what they what they study. Well, there is that theory of 10,000 hours, you know, which is that what you what you pay attention to, you tend to get good at, right? And and I think that um, be, because EQ is one of these things that is seen as, well, it's a bit hard to put your finger on, so what is it? It's intangible, isn't it? Um, therefore, I think that, you know, there, there has been a tendency to dismiss it as, you know, things like, well, it's charm, it's slickness, it's this, it's that. But the reality of it is, it's anything but those things. You know, it's the ability to be empathetic. It's the ability to see another person's point of view. It's the ability to be reasonable, right? And I say, and all of those things actually are things you can learn over time. They are behaviors that you can adopt and there are experiences that you can that you can um, you can learn from and and while I would say you know and you'd expect me to share in the small business charter to say this is that I think business schools are a great place to learn those skills. I also think you know an understanding of history is a really good uh, way of learning those skills. How people have have approached things in the past, where you know thought processes may or may not have led to the right decision or have led to to the wrong decision. So I think experience hugely matters, and I think that actually how we learn um, is, a, is a really important part. And I think, you know, in many respects, for many 
especially small firms, is that because you've got to make it up as you go along, because you don't have the benefit of experience or the benefit of learning, is that mistakes tend to be a really costly way of getting there. But to the point of actually, can you get better? Pretty much most things you can get better at with practice. Okay. So that's uh, that's EQ. Another important uh, um, leadership uh, topic, risk. I saw you uh, earlier this summer uh, chairing a very high-powered discussion about the importance for leaders of, of, of risk, taking risks to achieve success. So what, what have been the risks that you have taken in your own business career? Well, I think the biggest risk any, any, um, any entrepreneur takes is actually going to become an entrepreneur. You know, when I, I wrote a book called, called Mission and, and um, one of the chapters is called Burn the Boats. And, and you know, to this day, I still get um, comments on that, on that, um, that chapter because it was one that, it's one that a lot of people feel, right? You know, if you're, if you're sat in decent work and you're sat, you know, as I was newly married and, and with, with a new child on the way, you know, going home and saying, actually, I'm going to throw all that away and start a new business is a pretty risky thing to do. And actually, when you, when you look when you look back at it and you you know and, and the only thing that's that's protecting you is a really really naive statement which is well if it all goes wrong i can get a job that's a pretty naive way of looking at it because you can get a job with you know huge amounts of debt huge amounts of problems that you're taking with you from that experience and so i feel that you know the reason why we wrote that chapter is burn the boats is that if you're going to start a business, you've got to do it with a hundred percent commitment. And it's very difficult to have a foot in both camps. And, and the burning the boats was a historical uh, story about the conquistadors landing in Latin America, where the captains were ordered to burn the boats so the troops would march forward. I think there was something about, about, you know, that you've got to be aware that when you're taking a risk is that you can't be half-hearted about it. And I think starting that business was a, you know, when I look back to those early days of 2010, when when we started Seven Hills, is that that was an incredibly risky thing to do, given that I'd spent so long, you know, both my business partner, Nick, and I had got, you know, pretty good careers. We were well rated in what we did. We were sat, you know, in, in positions where, in either way we'd travel, there were good options ahead. And then we decided to just have a go. And I think that was a pretty risky thing to do. <laughs> It's, it sounds like it, especially when you got we got mortgages, you got kids on the yeah, way, all, all those, you know, all of that. Yeah. But with risk comes reward. And I, yeah. I look, it's a, it's a great thing to look to look through your social media. It's full of you hosting discussions, interviews with with got some fascinating people. I mean, I I was drawn in before I even knew I was going to interview with George Clark. He's a great great. Yeah. Uh, a yeah. hero of mine, and you you interviewed him quite recently. But on, on a different level, I'm going to go through a random list here: Sir Michael Morpurgo, Baroness Helena Morrissey, Dame Evelyn Glennie, General David Petraeus. Yeah. I mean, this is all incredibly exciting. So, you know, to what extent are you motivated by the thrill of your leadership? Well, I I, I feel um, you know, I mean, look, you're you're a great interviewer, which you know, and and I I feel that a great interviewers are good at questions, right? You know, and and um, and I feel that. You know, the art living a life in questions rather than trying to live a life in answers is, um, it, you know, ma- makes makes a lot I'm of gonna happen. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that. Living the life in questions. Well, because I think that you know, I mean, I, I can remember when I when I took um, when I took when I took the role I've got at the University of London. One, one of the one of the deans turned around to me and said, um, you know, a great problem with entrepreneurs is they turn up with answers before they know what the questions are. And I thought, and at first I thought. 
is that an insult? And then I thought, actually, that's brilliant because, you know, it's true, isn't it? That, you know, that, that so much is, is, um, is made possible if you spend time thinking about, well, what do I want to learn from you, right? And that's, that's what good interviewers do, right? Which is that they, they don't shut you down. They, open, they ask nice open questions so that you can reveal yourself. And I suppose with all the interviews that I've done is that, you know, I, I've got that reputation of, 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 you know, decent questions. And I always love that moment where somebody goes, that's a good question. Because in a way, as, as an interviewer, that, that is the ultimate sort of, you know, uh, the ultimate compliment that you, you can be given. And I, I feel that, um, you know, the, the interviews that I've, I've taken, uh, you know, with, with a lot of those characters and, and many others actually, um, are, um, you know, they are, they are, an ability to see not my leadership, but their leadership. You know, the, the, the opportunity is to sort of be a sponge for a moment to actually think about, well, how does that life, you know, get to that point where to the outside eye, it looks like you're jumping from one rarefied height to another. And in almost every case, there are issues to do with self-doubt. There are issues to do with hurdles to overcome. There's drama in the script. There are things that, you know, will drive people um, to you know, to go forward. And I, and, and anyway, when people say to me, well, what was your favorite interview? Which I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you ask, because I always feel like Bruce Forsyth and saying, well, you're all my favorites, you know? And, and I, and I genuinely feel that, they, that every one of those, every one of those people you, you mentioned, I loved interviewing them because they were so, they were so brilliant. I mean, my, Michael Morpurgo, the most gentle human being you, you've ever met. Um, children's, author. children's author, storyteller, Warhurst, Evelyn Glenny. I mean, incredible percussionist, um, Helena Morrissey in the city, David Petraeus, you know, the sort of thinking general on, on um, um, you know, and so, um, and, and a former director of the CIA. I mean, so, and, and they've all, but they've all got common denominators. There's humanity there. There's, there's, the, you know, there's a sort of relatable story. And, you know, as, as a sort of storyteller, it's a great thrill to be able to help them um, narrate those stories. Yes, I can imagine. It was, it was pretty good just listening to them, but to be in the room, I guess that was even better. Um, so um, that comes to quite naturally to a point. A big part of your leadership seems to be being omnipresent. Um, you know, so you know you're here, there, you're everywhere. You're obviously incredibly busy. So there's a couple of points that come out of that. How do you? How does a, a leader like yourself then find time to think? And also, how do you find time to maintain a balance? You know, whether yeah. that be family life or social life or whatever. Good om omnipresent sounds awful, doesn't it? I mean, it's sort of like. <laughs> Some quiz I religious set. Anyway, um, omnipresent. Well, okay. I mean, let's accept the premises that I get out a bit, right? So, uh... <laughs> yes. Sorry, that's probably that's a probably an easier way of putting it. Yeah, I get that. Um, I think um, I, I think there is. Look, for me, I can say without question that my priority is, despite all of this, is my family, and it's pretty. It's pretty sort of. You know, um, it's pretty basic things, right? Which is, I, I, you know, I feel like I want to provide, I want to protect, I want to deliver um, for for my family, and and that means I, I want to work hard um, um, to um, to do that. Um, I think um, um, that provides the kind of internal, you know, engine room, I suppose. Um, I think on in terms of the the thinking, I think you have to, no matter how busy you are. You, there are always times, and you'll know this, is no matter how busy you are spinning plates, there are always times where you might be internally loafing a bit. You might not be doing everything you could do. You might not be as productive as you could do. And, and I feel like, you know, 
it, yeah, I, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, which is that I can procrastinate. I, I could have been in another, I mean, I think sometimes you've got to know the art of procrastination to be really productive because I mean, left to my own devices, I'd be quite happy to sort of like put my feet up and, you know, finish Netflix or whatever. But I mean, I, I, I kind of, am, I suppose I'm, I'm also driven by a sense that we don't, we're not here for very long. You know, you, you get it, you get a certain amount of time and how you use that time, that is a choice, right? And I think, you know, allied to that, there is the there is the sort of element of physical health, which is that the more time you invest in physical health, usually the clearer your thinking is, right? So, so I think that, you know, like before seeing you, I get up early, I did a mile swimming before, before our, our, um, our call. And, 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 and that, that gives you, thinking time to think about and it's amazing what 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 sort of that by having an empty space where you're just counting laps you are in a way creating space in your mind to to suddenly wake up to new thoughts whereas if all you're doing is you know you're at your pc you're sat and you think you're being productive in many ways you're not so so the thinking space is about giving yourself unexpected opportunities fresh air is another great one keeping a pad close is always a really good and it's really one. interesting. I always carry a pencil when I'm out yeah. running because you stop, you got the pad in the pocket, you write it down. It's fantastic and, for thinking, yes. And it is, and, and also read read what you wrote a day later to realize whether was it that you split the atom or was that a genuinely terrible idea. Um, so I think you've got to keep a certain element of physical health. And I learned that um, in 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 the early days of Seven Hills, I I, I did not put as much time into physical health. I, I was then diagnosed as being a celiac. And um, that was actually quite an important moment for me because actually I started to sort of think about, well, actually I've been poisoning my body with wheat for most of my adult life. Um, and, um, you know, th that that clogs things up, you know, miss your thinking. And I think, you know, that that was an important first step. And, and now I just try and be, I, I would say active, you know, as more than anything else. And I think that that helps with the thinking. Um, and, and in terms of time to think, I mean, I think, look, I mean, it's, there's not a perfect answer for that because, you know, I think very few people live a nine to five life anymore and very few entrepreneurs do. I mean, you know, you are always, you know, I think it's how you it's how you approach it. Right. Because I think if you wake up in the morning and you approach the world with dread. Now, I had to do a call this this weekend on Sunday with a, with a customer for, for three hours. And I, I kind of like. You know, Saturday night, I was sat there thinking, oh, do you know, do I really want to do it? And then I actually thought, well, it's a brand new assignment, brand new people. They want to give their time to see us so that they can get going quicker. So I need to get excited about the fact that actually there are opportunities here. And those opportunities are the ability to progress the business that I'm, you know, I co-founded, the opportunity to do some new things and, and exciting new things. And I think so, so attitude is a hugely important part about how you make the time and actually how you maintain the energy, which is that if you look at these things as being the sort of things you don't want to do, you'll run out of energy. If you look at them as being actually like this, great new friend to me, great, what a great, you know, what a great way to spend a bit of time. That's not work. <laughs> right, right. And so I'm guessing this is all going to feed into my big final question. As a successful role model leader, what, what single piece of advice might you get? I mean, you've obviously already given half a dozen pieces that I've written down here, but what single piece of advice might you give to the leaders current and future at the Mining Business School? Be kind to yourself. I think that's the, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hard one 
um, easy, easy to say, difficult to do. I think that, um, you know, we, we live in this sort of like, you know, hugely stressful world where I think that, you know, we put unrealistic expectations on ourselves. I think that, you know, I, I, I know it's, it's not a hard piece of advice, Mike, but I think that, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, even the premise of that question, successful role model leader, I don't know that. I'm not sure that's what I am, if I'm honest. But I think that, you know, I, I think what I'm good at is friendships. You know, I like meeting people. Um, and I think that that kindness is an important part of that. And being kind to yourself is the first step. Great stuff. Great stuff. Be kind to yourself. I don't think anybody's ever said that. I'm having that. Yes, brilliant. <laughs> so, Michael Heyman, thank you very, very, very much for being being such a candid guest on the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast. Absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the others that are also available, including those with the IT giant, Sir Ken Elisa the chair of the FA, Debbie Hewitt, and the former chair of Burberry, Experian and Standard Chartered, Sir John Peace. The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast is produced for Nottingham Trent University by Celtic Tiger Productions. Your presenter was Mike Sassy, and your producer was John Collins. <laughs>